0: It's a great pleasure to me to be able to introduce this evening uh, the first of the uh, two lectures by this, uh, one of the two uh, of this year's Lakatos Award winners, uh, Dr. Hasek Chang from University College London. Now, Hasek began his serious career in history and philosophy of science at Caltech, where he was a physics student and found that he couldn't really understand the physics he was studying. And he ran into the historian Dan Kevles and never looked back. Uh, Hasek went from Caltech to Stanford, where he studied uh, with the uh, young hotshot historian Peter Gallison, and I also was lucky enough to be supervising uh, Hasek's dissertation while he was at Stanford. And then uh, Hasek went from um, one end of the age scale to the other. He had originally at Stanford been studying with the um, up-and-coming bright young hotshot in the field, Peter Gallison, and he went off to Harvard for a postdoc with what's probably the grand old man of history of physics, Jerry Holton. And then from Um, From there uh, on to University College London, which is good luck for all of us uh, who have gotten to see a lot of HASIC uh, on account of that and has been very instrumental in building the wonderful new program in science technology studies at, um, uh, along with his colleagues um, over at UCL, and has been often at LSE in cooperative projects, in particular a long-standing project on measurement in physics and economics with Mary Morgan here. Uh, now, um, Hasek wrote his f- dissertation on Um, He wrote his dissertation on quantum measurement, and uh, already he was a bit of a renegade because he didn't write on the traditional quantum measurement problem that philosophers of physics are all concerned about, but rather about real measurement and how that affected uh, the quantum measurement problem. His award-winning book is on measuring temperature, and as I said, he was part of this um, research group on measurement, and physics, and economics. So by now, Hasik is certainly, I think, known throughout philosophy and history of science as the guru on measurement. Now, one of the kinds of things that never oops, never gets to appear in your CV are some of the important things that you've really done. And one of them uh, that I wanted to mention about Hasik is that he has uh, spearheaded and been keenly uh, influential in a movement to set a new agenda in history of, uh, in the research in history and philosophy of science and to um, try and bring a much greater focus in history and philosophy of science on research and practice now it, um, apparently focusing on practice is something that we all did back in my generation, so that move was already done but what 's um, new and exciting about the new work that Hasek and Uh, his friends and uh, colleagues are doing, is to focus on effective practice, on practices that will help improve understanding and, in particular, planning and policy in the sciences. And in particular, um, he's been a founding member of the uh, Society for Philosophy of Science and Practice, which now has um, uh, groups meeting all around the world. Um, I think I will only close with a couple of remarks that um, occurred at dinner last evening. Um, Hasek's father, uh, who was, uh, is a distinguished uh, uh, civil servant and politician and was a minister of trade and industry, has, um, you know, just as philosophers have enormous respect for um, people who do things do real things, Uh, he has an enormous respect for professors, it seems. And he was uh, telling me last evening that in Korea, uh, there's such respect for professors that students must be very careful never, never to even step on the shadow of their professors. Um, Now, I want to say that Hasek has been exceedingly good at uh, being Korean in this respect and has never in any way stepped on the shadow of any of his teachers or um, older collaborators, Peter Gallison or me or Mary Morgan or uh, Jerry Holton. Um, But he's done it in an extraordinarily uh, special way. Uh, He hasn't stepped on our shadows because what he's done is he spurred it way, way out in front. Um, Then the other thing that happened uh, that was noted at dinner last night was Hasek's department head uh, said um, was praised by um, Hasek's mom and dad (laughs) for thinking of and describing Hasek as a rising star. And I just want to, I think, conclude my introduction by pointing out that I think this is not really an apt description and that the department chair will be happy to agree with me that Hasik is really a risen star. Thank you, Hasek.
1: Thank you very much, Nancy, for that wonderful introduction. Thank you all for coming here. It's a tremendous honor to be standing here today. I won't pretend that I never dreamt of winning the Lakatos Award one day, but I actually didn't think it would happen. So it's it's wonderful to be here. I know we don't have much time today, and I hope to have a chance to thank a few people at the reception if you're coming to that. But there are two things I must mention briefly now. First of all, I'm so pleased to share this award with Harvey Brown, which feels actually better than winning it alone. So thank you, Harvey. And then I must say how delighted I am to actually have my parents here from Korea, um, just to continue on that family theme. Before I had any inkling of winning this award, they had planned to come for a visit in February, actually. And then some things came up and their visit had to be postponed until, as it just happened, mid-April. Now, in February, we were actually going to take a trip to Hungary, to celebrate my mother's 17th birthday. That didn't happen, but instead here we are commemorating the most celebrated Hungarian in our business. So things I think sometimes have a way of working out, and I'm delighted. Now, you know, it took me about 10 years to write Inventing Temperature, from its conception to the actual publication, and some people think that's a very long time but is absolutely nothing compared to the 41 years of complete dedication from my conception that my parents had to spend to get me this far. (laughs) So may I ask you to join me in thanking them with a big round of applause. Thank you. Now, my main aim today is to give you the spirit of the investigations that produced my book. I'm not going to give intricate philosophical arguments or full details of any historical case studies today. If you want the details, please read the book. For now, I'll have to ask you to simply trust the Lactose Award Committee that I have grappled sufficiently with the devil that's in the details. The two main parts to my talk today now, can everybody hear me? Okay, too loud? No, just wave or something if it's not good. First half is mainly concerned with questions of epistemology, arising from a particular type of problem in the measurement of temperature. Building on that discussion, the second half will ask about the nature and function of the philosophy of science. What is our business all about? Now. Let me begin by remembering what initially got me into this long and peculiar study of thermometers back in the autumn of 1994. I was interested in the old familiar issue of the theory ladenness of observation. I also wanted to carry on with the analysis of actual laboratory measurement methods, which Nancy mentioned as part of my PhD work. As I had got tired of having to explain so much quantum mechanics and that sort of thing to people before I could even start talking about the philosophy, I wanted to use some scientifically simpler cases. So I might not naturally turn to thermometers since at this time my postdoctoral supervisor, Gerald Holton had put me on to looking at the history of low temperature physics. So I thought this is nice because temperature is an absolutely fundamental physical quantity. But it's something that everyone has some sense of and everyone knows how to use a basic thermometer. Well, so I thought until I saw this. Kentucky Fried Chicken. Now I tell my students that if science doesn't work out for them, there is always a career in advertising. At any rate, I said to myself, Let's take something as simple as an ordinary mercury thermometer. Does even such a simple instrument involve theory? Yes. The key assumption here is that mercury in the thermometer expands uniformly or linearly with increasing temperature. So think about the picture here, how simple thermometers are made. We take a glass tube partly filled with mercury. We plunge that into freezing water. See how far the mercury comes up. Mark that point zero. We plunge it into boiling water, mark that point 100, and then um, we say we divide up that interval equally in, in between. So the halfway point is 50, etc. So what we assume is that when the temperature is exactly 50 degrees centigrade, the mercury comes up exactly to the halfway point. But is that true? If you're a good physicist, you would think that such assumptions should be, of course, tested by experiment. So you would want to take some data and make a plot of the volume of Mercury against temperature, see if the points lie on a straight line. But if you look at that graph, how would you get the temperature values on the x-axis unless you already had a thermometer that you can trust, which is exactly what you don't have yet. You could try using a different kind of thermometer to take the temperature values, but then you have to worry about how you know that thermometer is good. You could try to make a theoretical argument about whether Mercury expands linearly or not, but that would require a detailed theory of thermal physics, which you would in you know, all likely wouldn't have to test by experiments that involve the measurement of temperature. So either way, we seem to be stuck with a circularity Now I soon realized that this was not a problem peculiar to thermometry, but a general problem pertaining to nearly every attempt to justify any method of physical measurement. Now, as philosophers always do, I made up a new term designating this problem. So I called it the problem of gnomic measurement. Here's a precise formulation of it. First, we want to measure some quantity x. If that quantity is not directly observable, what we have to do is infer it from another quantity y which is directly observable. For that inference, we need a law that expresses x as a function of y. But the form of this function f cannot be discovered or tested empirically because that would involve knowing the values of both y and x, but x is the unknown variable that we don't know how to measure yet. So you've got a nice tight circularity at the very foundation of empirical science. Now, I couldn't see any solution to this. I was about to give up, ah, I'll hide that for now. When I was just about to give up, it occurred to me, but they have done this, meaning, right, if you ask physicists today, uh, they say they know exactly how mercury expands according to temperature, and they know it's actually not linear. So somewhere, somebody must have figured out a solution to this problem. So I thought at least I could go and look at the history to learn how this was actually done. Now, the, the data I'm just showing you here quickly is an illustration of why practicing scientists would have worried about this. Um, This is what you get when you make thermometers in the same way, make them agree at 0 and 100, fill them with different liquids, and this is the kind of difference you get. In the middle of the scale, mercury and alcohol thermometers will differ as much as 6 degrees. Unless you've sorted this out, you cannot do science. So, where have we got? We got the question of different thermometers filled with different liquids. We have to decide which one is correct. Now, when I did look at the history, I realized that this was a major problem that exercised some of the best scientific minds of Europe for 150 years, which means I'm not going to tell you the whole story. I'm going to give you three snippets, snapshots of this long history. The first person who nearly got everyone to agree on a solution to this problem was the Swiss meteorologist, geologist, theologian, and businessman Jean-André Deluc, who later in life lived in Windsor as the tutor to Queen Charlotte of the Mad King George III. Now, De Luc had a simple and ingenious idea, which I call the method of mixtures. He said, if you take two equal amounts by weight of freezing and boiling water, mix them up quickly, the mixture should be at 50 degrees, because right? one is zero by definition, the other is 100 very clever. <laughs> right. Then you stick various thermometers into that mixture and the one that comes out closest to 50 is the best one. Now he actually did this. And on the basis of his experiments, uh, I'll show you the summary result. He's using uh, an 80 degree scale which they had in French speaking worlds. Um, so 40 in the midpoint is how it should come out. Mercury is the best one. It's only 1.4 degrees out. Everything else, as you can see, is way out. So look concluded that mercury was the best choice, and he almost convinced everyone, but not quite. Why? Because some people noticed that even this method relied on an untested bit of theory. Now go back to the case of mixing two equal amounts of boiling and freezing water. When we say that that mixture should be at 50 degrees exactly, what we're assuming is that it takes exactly the same amount of heat to bring that body of water from 0 to 50 degrees as it does to take it from 50 to 100. Generally speaking, what that comes down to is the assumption that the specific heat of water is a constant, not a function of temperature. How do we know that? It may not be true, and actually it isn't even possible to test it without employing a thermometer. So we're right back where we started with the circularity again. Now, we jump to Paris in the 1840s. There we find Victor Renaud, professor of physics at the Collège de France, just coming to the height of his career as the dominant figure in French experimental physics. Renaud had a very well-funded government commission to study everything relevant to the workings of the steam engine to help French industry compete with the British. Now, having studied the failure of the looks meant other mixtures and many other fumblings in the history of theoretical physics, Prenier resolved never to rely on untested theory in his experimental work. The methods of laboratory measurements had to be established first before any theories could be tested. Now, Renaud became quite the master of such theory-free experimental physics. Instead of theory, he used what he called the criterion of comparability or comparability, which goes, if a type of thermometer is to be an accurate instrument, all thermometers of that type must at least agree with each other in their readings. Now, wonderfully, comparability was actually sufficient to rule out the popular alcohol and mercury thermometers because Renier found that alcohol thermometers disagreed with each other if they were filled with different concentrations of alcohol. So whiskey or bitter, I mean, that makes a difference in the shape of the curve. And in the case of mercury, the kind of glass that was used to contain the mercury made these irreconcilable differences. So Renier concluded that air was the only thermometric substance in practical use that satisfied the comparability criterion. Now, his solution was adopted by most practical researchers, but it would have been disappointing to anyone expecting that the definitive solution should tell us which thermometers are definitely correct and which ones are not. Because as Renou always emphasized, comparability doesn't give you truth. It's just self-consistency. Now, the next vignette I'll give you is to do with this guy. Now, Renier's work on comparability was published in 1847. Just one year later, the young professor of natural philosophy in Glasgow, William Thomson, later to be called Lord Kelvin, just 24 years of age, expressed his dissatisfaction with Rainier's handling of temperature. Not only was he not happy with never knowing the true temperature, but he also thought it was wrong to tie the definition of such a fundamental concept as temperature to a particular material substance like air. So Thomson set out to make an entirely abstract and theoretical definition of temperature, which he called absolute temperature. Now, for that purpose, Thomson used the um, theory of ideal heat engine by Sadi Carnot, which he himself helped to um, resurrect from oblivion. I'm not gonna go into the details here, but these are the two subsequent, uh, successive rather, definitions of absolute temperature he gave. The second one is what we later came to designate as degrees Kelvin. Now, having severed the connection between the concept of temperature and any material substances, How was Thomson to decide which material substances should be used in order to make some thermometers to measure this concept? Now, theoretically, he deduced that a thermometer made with an ideal gas would give indications of absolute temperature. But he knew full well that there were no ideal gases. So what he did, he made thermometers with actual gases and corrected them by making an assessment of how much those actual gases deviated from the ideal. This was done by means of the joule thomson effect in which a gas passes through a very small orifice and experiences a change of temperature in that process. An ideal gas shouldn't change temperature at all in that process, so um, the measured deviation of temperature gives you an indication of the deviation of the gas from the ideal. Sounds good, The trouble is that the measurement of the Joule-Thompson effect requires an accurate thermometer. So we're back to the same kind of circularity that we have been dealing with. Later in life, Thomson recognized this philosophical difficulty clearly, and he said, I quote, we have no right to measure these heating and cooling effects on any scale of temperature as we have not yet formed a thermometric scale. Now, circularity keeps coming up. It's a feature that I found time and again in my study of measurement methods. It reflects a fundamental problem in empiricist epistemology, which is that we can only learn something on the basis of something else we know, but initially we don't know anything. In that situation, how can knowledge develop? That is the main question, in the second part of today's presentation, so section A2, I'm just coming to now. Now, let me briefly go back to Thomson. Thomson, in collaboration with James Joule in the 1850s, forged ahead by making measurements using Joule's mercury thermometer, not even a Renier type air thermometer. That is to say, Thomson and Joule made progress by using an instrument that they knew to be unreliable. I actually think at that time they were just being practical or even sloppy. But, happily, by the end of the 19th century, other people, such as H.L. Callender, H.L. uh, Le Chatelier in France, actually clarified the epistemic situation. So how does it go? Initially, we start with the assumption that a thermometer made with an actual gas indicates absolute temperature roughly, but not exactly. Then we make corrections to the gas thermometer with the help of the joule thomson effect. But since the joule thomson effect itself is measured with an incorrect thermometer, the correction itself is incorrect. But second order corrections can be made by using the corrected thermometer to correct the corrections and so on. Thankfully, in this case, the first order corrections are quite small already, and the second order corrections even smaller, and soon enough, you would reach convergence. Now, this work of Thomson's exemplifies a strategy of growth which I call epistemic iteration. It's a process in which successive stages of knowledge are created, each building on the preceding one, in order to enhance the achievement of certain epistemic goals, goals like precision, consistency, scope, explanatory power, simplicity, and so on. Now, the interesting thing about epistemic iteration is that we don't start with indubitable facts or with axioms that are accepted as certain. Instead, we start with a system of knowledge that we recognize as imperfect or even faulty. Epistemic iteration is a process of creative evolution in which the imperfect starting point is used to improve itself. There's generally no fixed algorithm that tells us how to proceed, only the impetus and constraints provided by the epistemic values and aims that we adopt. Now, to illustrate the idea of epistemic iteration further, what I would like to do is give you three provocative metaphors. Now, one of the um, most wonderful things about epistemic iteration is the possibility of self-correction. That is, launching an investigation on an imperfect basis and using the results of that very investigation to return to the starting assumptions and revise them. That is precisely what happened in the measurement of Thomson's absolute temperature. But you might ask, how is such a thing possible? Sounds too good to be true. Now, here comes the first metaphor. Think of the plight of a very nearsighted person trying to examine his own glasses. So My eyes aren't that bad, but let's just pretend for the moment that they are. So if I pick up my glasses and try to look at them, I can't see the fine scratches on the lenses. What can I do? Well, if I just put them on, and look at myself in the mirror, I can see the glasses quite well. I can actually see the defects. So I think that this is a marvelous image of self-correction. Try that at home with the mirror, it's nice. (laughs) But there is an issue, right? How can I trust the image of the defective glasses that is obtained through the very same defective glasses? Well, in the first instance, my confidence comes from the sensible clarity and acuity of the image itself, regardless of how it was obtained. That gives me some reason to accept provisionally that certain defects in the glasses somehow do not affect the quality of the image seen, even when that image is uh, the image of the defects themselves. Now, that doesn't give you ultimate truth, it does give us improvement, judged by certain clear criteria. Epistemic iteration also gives us refinement, that is strictly speaking, not correction. The idea is that we can start with something vague, on on that basis, establish something more detailed and specific. This happens routinely when we try to increase precision, either of measuring instruments or calculations. For example, think about how physicists started with clocks and watches that only measured time down to the level of one second, right? And used those time measurements to develop a kind of physics that allowed the construction of clocks measuring down to very small fractions of a second. Somehow, they were able to use the earlier, less precise standard to bootstrap their way into a more precise standard, That happened with temperature as well, with just about any other quantitative measures we have in science. So to speak to that point, let me give you the second metaphor to illustrate that point about how this kind of bootstrapping can work. Now, this is a real story. There's a very amusing road sign I used to see driving around in western Massachusetts in a small town. I'm sorry, it never occurred to me to take a photo of this thing. thats I'm not making this up. This is real. It seemed to designate a bridge named after a street that was named after the bridge. Years later, when I got thinking about epistemic iteration, I figured out how that must have come to be. Suppose there was initially just one bridge and one main street in this little town. No need to name anything. So the bridge was simply called the bridge. Then came more streets, and they had to be distinguished from each other, so the one leading to the bridge was named Bridge Street. Then came more bridges along the river, at which point you had to name those. Made sense to name the bridges after the streets connected to them. So the old bridge was named Bridge Street Bridge. The apparent circular nonsense in that name might actually be a record of a very sensible iterative process of development. Now, there's also a metaphor that we have to overcome. It's that one. It's the old foundationalist picture of building knowledge on a firm ground. That's my rendition of it. There is no such thing as the firm ground in empirical science. But it turns out that the foundationalists have been sitting on the perfect metaphor to express the kinds of things I'm trying to tell you now. There's only one thing you have to do, which is to remember that the earth is not flat, For this round, it looks like this. In reality, we don't build upward on a flat earth, but outward on a round earth. That's how the metaphor building has to work as well. There are no fixed points and no up and down in the universe. Even Aristotle knew that. We build on the earth not because it's firmly fixed anywhere, but because it's a large and dense body that attracts other things, and we just happen to live on it. This is the image that I'd like to leave you with as I conclude the epistemological half of this talk. Now, I move on to the second half of the talk, in which I address questions about the nature and function of the philosophy of science. What good is the philosophy of science? Can everyone still hear me fine? Now, before I say anything else about the use of philosophy of science, I need to say a few words about what I think philosophy of science is. Now, I can tell you that. Um, This was the question I dreaded most back when I was doing undergraduate admissions for my department. Phone rings, 18-year-old at the other end. What is philosophy of science? How much time have you got? (laughs) (laughs) The first thing I have to address for my own purposes is the relation between philosophy of science and history of science. So that's section B1, which I'll do briefly. I begin by paying homage to Imre Lakatos himself. Famously, Lakatos said, philosophy of science without history of science is empty. History of science without philosophy of science is blind. Like Lakatos, when I talk about philosophy of science, I always have in mind the history and philosophy of science, or HPS, as an integrated field of study. Now, let me take this moment to anticipate a worry Having heard me in the last five minutes, some of you might be thinking, how does he presume to pronounce such general philosophical ideas on the basis of a few historical cases? The answer, in my view, is that we need to go beyond seeing episodes in the history of science as inductive evidence base for general philosophical ideas about how science works. The relation between philosophy and history here is not one between the general and the particular but one between the abstract and the concrete. Philosophy in the form of abstract concepts is required even for the telling of one single historical narrative. And the successful telling of a difficult historical narrative is actually one of the best ways of generating new philosophical ideas. In the reverse direction, a philosophical puzzle generates historiographical questions questions which historians motivated by other types of concerns may not raise. Both directions of influence can be seen clearly in my earlier discussion. The problem of gnomic measurement generated a very unique and productive line of historical inquiry, which allowed allowed me to pretend I was a professional historian of science. I was able to discover with relative ease many things that even the leading experts in the history of 18th and 19th century physics didn't know about. Meanwhile, trying to make a sensible account of how Thomson measured absolute temperature and a few other similar episodes forced me to articulate the notion of epistemic iteration, which I don't think I would have come up with if I had been just doing armchair philosophy. The influence between history of science and philosophy of science is mutual and dynamic. When you are immersed in the kind of work I do, it becomes quite difficult actually to say where the history ends and the philosophy begins or vice versa. There's much more I would like to say about the history and philosophy relation, but for today, I think it's more important that I talk about the relation between HPS and science. Again, I'm just gonna say HPS instead of saying history and philosophy of science each time. They cut about three minutes in my talk. This brings me to the next um, part of the presentation, section B2. I'm now going to put forward a controversial thesis, which is that HPS can improve scientific knowledge itself, going beyond giving a mere description of what scientists do and how science works. Now, the best way to register this general point, once again, is to give you a couple of concrete stories. Earlier, I mentioned the fixed points of thermometers, right? Now, the idea that phenomena like the boiling and freezing of water always happen at the same temperature is so widely accepted, it's become an item of scientific common sense. Typical example of that attitude we can find in this curious book called The Complete Idiot's Guide to Economics, where the author says, the findings and knowledge produced by a social science generally cannot be as exact or as predictable as those of physics or chemistry. For instance, if you put water in a saucepan on a stove, you know with certainty that it will boil when it reaches 212 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm going to spend the next 10 minutes telling you that this is just not true. And I'm not talking about the effect of air pressure and other factors, such as impurities, which you all know about, which can change the boiling temperature. What I'm saying is that pure water, under standard atmospheric pressure, does not always boil when it reaches 100 degrees, nor is it always at 100 degrees when it is boiling. This is not something I learned in some fancy physics courses at Caltech or Stanford. But it's something I learned from 200-year-old textbooks and periodicals in the course of my historical work. For example, I remember reading about Joseph Louis Gay-Lussac's report from 1812 that water boiled at 101.232 degrees in a glass vessel while it boiled at exactly 100 degrees in a metallic vessel. Now, in the book, I just reported this, uh, and many other and crazier things that I read. Like a good historian, I didn't get into the business of saying whether gay Lussac's reports would have been correct or not. But in the back of my mind, there was always that question, but is it true? In the summer of 2004, I had an opportunity to try out my own experiments, thanks to the generosity of the chemistry department at UCL, and also a small part of a grant I have from Lieberham Trust about um, the nature of evidence. So, I'm gonna show you some, a few snippets. Yeah, just dim dim the lights, of what I saw in the lab. Now, I have to apologize for the very amateur quality of these videos. But the fact that I've made them at all is all thanks to my colleague and technology guru, Joe Kane. I don't know where he is. He's somewhere here. Thank you, Joe. Now, the first clip here shows distilled water being boiled in the normal way in four different vessels. Um, The temperature is being monitored by three different thermometers, two mercury ones, and there's a metallic rod, which is the sensor of a digital thermometer, which works on electric resistance with a platinum tip. It's also got a digital face, which you'll see later in the clip. So let me show you what happens. So that's water in a normal glass beaker, boiling like it should. And it's a little dark, the digital face, but from the mercury thermometer you can see, it is uh, nearly 101, like Gilrysac said. This is an aluminum pot Let's see what happens in the metal. I can tell you this isn't, must not be the same metal that Gelisak used. Now the water is boiling quite well now. You would throw in your spaghetti now, right? Now let's see in a moment what the temperature is. 99.3. This is a saucepan that I commandeered from my kitchen. I have returned it since then. It's covered in teflon, the inner surface. You can see these bubbles are very, very eager to form on that surface. You, you see that they're not able to come up, and it's not even 88 degrees. Now they start to come up, but the water is still too cold for them to come through without being collapsed. And now, after a while, it's really boiling. Again, the pasta drawing point, point. 98.7 what was that temperature. The final bit here is water boiling in a Ordinary ceramic mug, which I bought at John Lewis. And you see that there's only really one place where the bubbles come It's having trouble generating bubbles. As they come up, they're very noisy, and they get huge by the time they reach the surface. What's the temperature? It's about 102 completely quiet moments in this vessel. And that the fewer bubbles you produce, the less heat you can lose to so the temperature as well. And this goes on for a bit and at the end you'll be able to see that the temperature after a while of boiling has reached a little bit over 102. It's nearly 103 in that bit. So, what's going on here? There's a, a range of at least about five whole degrees in the boiling temperature of water, depending on the material of the vessel in which it is boiled. So not only was Gay-Lussac right, he, he was even I mean, minimizing the effects that he should have observed. Now this is only a glimpse at the wonderful complexity of boiling. In fact, um, we made the look again um, he had done extensive work on this subject for 30 years before Gay-Lussac. The look's first main concern was that we normally use an extremely intense heat source, such as an open flame, to boil water. Now, when you think about it, the bubbles of vapor form in the layer of water that's immediately in contact with the very hot surface, where the temperature must be higher than, than what we measure in the main body of the water. And in the main body of the water, you don't form these bubbles. So in order to find the temperature of what he called true ebullition, the Luke thought we needed to bring the whole body of water to the same temperature, which he sought to achieve by heating the water slowly with a weak source of heat, while minimizing the loss of heat at the surface. So what he did was take a round flask with a very long thin neck, and heated it by immersion in a bath of hot oil. So the next clip shows you um, that arrangement. Now, I was able to pick up um, the chemist volumetric flask, which has just the right shape. There are hundreds of these lying around in the lab, so I was lucky. And I did try the oil bath, but uh, what you see in the clip is something simpler, in which the flask is being heated on a hot plate. That's quite hot, but much cooler and gentler than the Bunsen burner flame and that sort of thing. Let's see what happens here. So we start with the water quite cold at 36 degrees. It takes too long, so I'm gonna cut to where it begins to boil in just a moment. So it's beginning to boil normally, it's about 100 degrees. What you'll see um, is the bubbles now come from only a few places after a while. And the temperature is going up, nearly 102 now. And I'm gonna shut up now, let you observe. It's me going, what? Yeah, it's nearly 104. Huge bubbles, occasionally. But most of the time it's not doing anything. The water is superheated to 104 degrees. Now, that's enough um, of that now. Now, you, you may be wondering why the boiling behavior changes as it goes on, becoming more and more erratic. The look worked out that the formation of vapor bubbles was actually facilitated by the presence of dissolved air in the water. Because the process of boiling has the effect of sweeping out the dissolved air, the water becomes harder to boil as the boiling goes on. Now, as far as the loop was concerned, boiling facilitated by dissolved air was not true boiling. He wanted to study boiling in truly pure water. Now, even after prolonged boiling, there's still some dissolved air left in the water. So to remove that last bit of water, he came up with a kinetic technique. Now uh, anyone who's made the mistake of shaking a bottle of fizzy drink before opening it knows that shaking tends to disengage dissolved gases in water. So shaking is what Diluc did, he reports. This operation lasted four weeks. (laughs) Now there is dedication, during which I hardly ever put down my flask except to sleep, to do business in town, and to do things that required both hands. It doesn't tell you what those things were. I ate, I read, I wrote, I saw my friends, I took my walks, all the while shaking my water. Down the streets of Geneva. So the next and final video clip shows you what happens when you try to boil this degassed water. And no, I didn't go around shaking the water for four weeks. I found another method, which is almost as good and takes only 10 minutes. Now, what you see here um, is it's a little dim. It's a volumetric flask, as before, there's the long, thin neck. The main body is uh, buried underneath um, a bath of graphite. It's like sand, it's a lot easier to handle than. Uh, what the look was using, which was walnut oil. It goes crazy when a drop of water comes into it. So, graphite. And this bit here is a big thermometer, which can read down to 0.01 degrees. Um, when the clip starts playing, um, it's been heating for a long time. It's degassed water at the temperature of about 107. And it's not doing anything. And the temperature is increasing at the rate of about one degree per minute. So I'll just plunge you right into the middle of this so you can see what happens. Now, that's the water level there. Can you see that? Where the finger is. So I'm going to keep that finger there so you can see. It is precisely what Diluc reported in 1772. And I was able to replicate that. The only difference being that his water reached 112 degrees before blowing up. Mine was only 107.5 at best. I can have the back, now, as you can probably guess, I can go on and on about these experiments, but I'm gonna stop because if I don't stop, Harvey will have no time to give his lecture. Instead of going on, I'm gonna pose a question to you, which is, why don't we all know these things? These are not difficult experiments, you have to believe me. They can't be if I can do them with very little help except what I read in a text from 1772. Now, there are actually some specialists who do know about these intricacies of boiling. They actually tend to be mechanical and chemical engineers rather than physicists or physical chemists. And even those specialists don't seem to have clear answers about some of the things I've resurrected from two centuries ago. For example, how exactly the dissolved air facilitates boiling. And in any case, why should these very mundane phenomena be reserved for any kind of specialist? I mean, we all boil water on a daily basis. So we should all know better than go around repeating that pure water or understand that pressure always boils at 100 degrees, marking down students and scolding children who don't agree with that piece of untruth. Now, these things are forgotten because they're inconvenient to current specialist science, either because they're irrelevant and distracting to cutting-edge investigations, or because they're contrary to some foundational assumptions that current science takes for granted. Over the 19th century, thermal physics came to be based on the idea of sharp phase transitions, emblematically expressed in that phase diagram, right? With a sharp line between the liquid and gas phase. None of the things I've shown you in the last 10 minutes can be fitted into that picture of things, so they become lost. Now, Thinking about lost knowledge brings me to the last part of today's presentation. In which I present to you the vision of what I've called complementary science, which is another phrase for HPS in the complementary mode. Here's a definitive statement. Because many things are protected from questioning and criticism in specialist science, Its demonstrated effectiveness is also unavoidably accompanied by a degree of dogmatism and narrowness of focus that can actually result in a loss of knowledge. Complementary science can ameliorate this situation by asking scientific questions that are excluded from current specialist science. It can generate scientific knowledge where science itself fails to do so. Now let me spell this out a bit. The cutting edge is not all there is to science. There are valuable scientific questions that current specialists are not able to address for good reasons. Specialists do not and cannot work with complete freedom. Their line of thinking is severely constrained by a particular tradition, which is what allows them to focus so strongly on detailed and esoteric topics of research. This I think is the truly lasting part of Thomas Kuhn's insights about the nature of paradigm-based normal science. In order to avoid some disputable aspects of Kuhn's concept, I speak of specialist science instead of normal science. History of science and philosophy of science can both serve as a refuge for excluded scientific questions. Now, there are various metaphors that have helped me think about the relationship between specialist science and complementary science, and I'm going to mention just a few of them briefly. I think of HPS in the complementary mode as a shadow discipline, as the shadow again, to specialist science, like we have the shadow cabinet, always picking up on things that the cabinet in power neglects. In another metaphor, Specialist science sometimes seems to me a bit like capitalism. It is undeniably efficient and productive, but it also has noxious side effects, such as an unreasonable concentration of wealth and the neglect of many human needs. Just like we need a welfare system or philanthropy to help us meet the needs of society that the capitalist economy neglects, we need HPS to address intellectual needs that specialist science is too busy or too blind to address. Finally, I find a nice echo in the famous adage attributed to Clausewitz that war is a continuation of politics by other means. HPS, I think, is a continuation of science by other means. HPS in its complementary mode is not about science. Rather, it is science, just not as we know it. The most important part of that insight is that nature, rather than science, is the object of study for complementary HPS. Now, coming towards the end. There are three major ways in which complementary science can improve our knowledge of nature. First, critical awareness. Second, recovery from the past. Third, new developments. Now, These three aspects are tightly connected with each other, constituting an integrated process of knowledge production. When we identify scientific questions that are excluded by specialist science, the implication is that we would like to have those questions answered. That is already a critical value judgment on specialist science, namely that it neglects certain questions we consider important or interesting. And then when we examine certain discarded elements of past science, we may reach a judgment that they were rejected either for imperfect reasons or for reasons that are no longer valid. If we decide that there are avenues of knowledge that were closed off for poor reasons, then we should try to explore them again. At that point, complementary science would start creating parallel traditions of scientific research which depart from the dominant traditions that have developed in specialist science. So, to conclude, complementary science could trigger a decisive transformation in the nature of our scientific knowledge. Alongside the expanding and diversifying store of current specialist knowledge, we can create a growing complementary body of knowledge that combines a reclamation of past science, a renewed judgment on past and present science, and an exploration of alternatives. This knowledge would by its nature tend to be accessible to non-specialists. It would also be helpful or at least interesting to the current specialists. It may interfere with their work insofar as it erodes blind faith in the fundamentals, but I believe that would be a beneficial effect overall. The most curious and exciting effect of all may be on education. Complementary science could become a mainstay of scientific education, serving the needs of general education as well as preparation for specialist training. That would be a most far-reaching step, enabling the educated public once again to participate in the wonderful enterprise of building the knowledge of our universe. Thank you very much.
0: Lovely. Thank you. We have. Um, <laughs> uh, we will have a break uh, before we start the next talk at 6:30. Uh, but I think that leaves us a few minutes for discussion. So, are there people with questions or remarks? Please.
1: <laughs> and an economist and. Yes, uh, we economists are very good at uh, having blind faith and I'm I'm glad that he took a mickey out of uh, economists. Well, actually, I have uh, a genuine question which uh, uh, I would uh, briefly ask. Actually, how do you know when it's uh, boiling? What? Yeah. (laughs) Do you trust your eyes? No, that's absolutely one thing that Luke struggled with. In his book, you, you... he distinguished six different phenomena, ah. actually, which we all lump together in the category of boiling. And, and an essential question. What he realized in his quest for what he called true evolution is that he didn't know what the hell boiling meant. So that, that's one thing I didn't address. Um, so thank you. If I tell you the material of uh, a saucepan, is there a possibility to predict whether it would boil at 97 or 103 degrees? I would love to, but so far as I've studied the existing literature, that's very hard. What you can predict is that if the surface is porous, that will tend to generate bubbles very well, because the little tiny micropores serve as nucleation sites. Also, if the surface is hydrophobic, that helps. And teflon is both Actually, in place of the old-style boiling stones people used to use in chemistry labs to smooth out the boiling, they now have these things called boiling stones. Uh, Boiling stones, yes, that's what they call the current ones. That's chips of pure Teflon. That's the stuff you buy these days. So you can predict some qualitative things, but there isn't enough science, as far as I know, for that quantitative prediction. Yeah, I can hear
0: Comment you. You're not suggesting that the triple point is similarly susceptible to variations? I actually,
1: yeah, no, that's a good question. The <laughs> triple point is, of course, what um, scientists nowadays use to fix uh, that near um, boiling point, uh, freezing point. But uh, there are two, two things to say. One is um, before the triple point, there was the steam point. Right, which is somehow more regular than the boiling water temperature. And uh, there are big debates between Cavendish and Luc about this. Cavendish arguing for steam and DeLuke saying, oh, what is your theory about this? Why do you think steam temperature is more reliable? And then we also got the thing about supersaturation of steam that was discovered 100 years later, which messed up the whole thing. So that, that's just a little bit of history. But coming back to the main point of your question, I don't know whether the triple point is reliable. I mean, I haven't done those experiments. When I showed these and other experiments to a man named Mike Ewing, the leading physical chemist at UCL on things like boiling, he let out a big sigh and said, these are just the things that I do my best to avoid. or rather prevent, that's the real point. Mike Ewing and his friends know exactly how to prevent these things. They know how to make water boil at 100 degrees. That's how they graduate thermometers, which is not to say that it always works like that. So I suspect the story about the triple point is also like that. They know exactly how to fix it, but it's an active way of fixing rather than regularity that you take in a passive way that nature just hands out to you on a plate. Well, Hasek, uh, thank you very much for a fantastic talk. But I was going to suggest that the triple point is precisely Uh your next project. In a a previous life, I did my PhD on glass-forming liquids. They are liquids that cool below below the freezing point and become like the glass that we have around us, not crystals. but amorphous liquids mm-hmm. and I think what you ought to do now is you ought to tackle that freezing point question and just see how they got around that one as well yes that would be very interesting to do there is more experiments coming and there are also better videos coming with professional help and they will all be on the website um, by September so look up up there Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, go on. W- would you say this type of investigation validates uh, uh, an anti-realist or, or um, instrumentalist attitude? Right. I, I think we got mixed up with questions. So let me answer that yeah, quickly. I don't think so. And um, again, I'm going to have to answer in a slightly metaphorical way for lack of time. I think the image of construction is a good one. I mean, we we think about constructivism as a very anti-realist doctrine. But actually, um, the term inventing, which is in the title of my book, which didn't come from me, that came from OUP, so thanks for that. Um, That's precisely right, because you can't invent anything you want. Your invention only works if you do it according to nature, right? So it's not an anti-realist thing. It's an anti-fundamentalist thing, if you um, will listen to Nancy, um, in that the process of fixing these things is a very complicated one. And it doesn't always work by virtue of there being some immutable universal regularities out there in nature. I I have a saying in mind from Percy Bridgman, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, uh, my intellectual grandfather, saying when we take, take close enough look, we will find that nature is neither simple nor subject to law. Now, he did, he did say that after he won the Nobel Prize. But <laughs> <laughs> it's not that nature doesn't have its own objectivity that we can't control. But I think what we do in science is we create simpler images of what there is out there in nature. And that's a lot of it.